hello, and welcome to the From 78 podcast. I am From 78. On today's show, you're going to be listening to another interview. And this interview was really fun for me to do because it was done with somebody who, like me, is in this kind of weird space and time, right? Uh, I was born in 1978. That's the title of this podcast, From 78. And being born at that time... I feel, as I've said before, is like I have a, a foot in kind of two worlds, right? It's like I have one foot in the world that exists kind of after the internet and all the technology that it's, you know, kind of tied to the internet in different ways really became a thing, right? This is the world with stuff like GPS and Netflix and Google and smartphones, all that stuff, right? I got, I got a foot in that world, but I was alive and doing stuff for long enough prior to the internet to remember what the world looked like before the internet really was a thing at all, right? I remember, you know, a world when you had to go to the library, and if you went to the library, you might use a computer to type paper, but using the computer to, I don't know, look up anything you wanted, that just wasn't a thing, right? I used card catalogs, I, um, you know, uh, used to have an atlas, uh, a road atlas in my car so that when I would get lost driving from point A to point B, I could pull out this big thing that was a lot of paper and try to figure out where I was on a map and then try to figure out where that place where I thought I was was in relation to the place that I thought I was going. I used to do all that. And the person who I'm interviewing today has a very similar experience in her own life. She's somebody who, like me, is uh, kind of one of those ex-lineals, right? Somebody who was born at the very end of Generation X and at the very beginning of that millennial time period. So it was really cool. Uh, one of the really, really interesting things that happens for me in this interview is that I start to realize that, you know, when, when I talk to people on the show, I talk about ghosts and ghosts are things from our past that continue to haunt us in our present. And I talk about specters. Inspectors are things from our future, which kind of, uh, you know, make their presence known and, and haunt us in our present. And in this interview, I start to realize that a lot of times there can be something from our past that haunts us, and then we can have kind of like a specter version of that same thing. Something really bad, really problematic, really traumatic happens in our past. And, you know, of course, that haunts us. But one of the things that, that also happens is sometimes people get worried, they get scared that a, uh, a different, newer version of this thing from our past is going to actually happen in our future. And then that specter starts to haunt us. It's like being haunted by the same thing from the past and from the future at the same time. So anyways, I'm going to stop talking about this now because I don't want to spoil any more of the interview for you. And uh, I'm going to say, here you go. This is my interview with somebody whose handle is Grasshopper. Back in like my formative years, my handle was Grasshopper, and there was a whole bunch of stuff related to that. Like old kung fu movies? Or like a horse that I rode that would leap like a grasshopper. 
Okay. So or, and also kung fu movies. <laughs> all right. We'll we'll go with Grasshopper. So this is from seventy eight. I'm sitting here with Grasshopper, and I am from seventy eight. So uh, I've I've been playing around with this interview format a little bit, and what I'm going to do here is I'm going to just uh, to kind of do a little bit of orientation. I'm going to toss out a couple of things. I'm just going to say some words at you, and what I want you to do is to um, you know just briefly. Let them run through your mind and then tell me what comes to mind, you know, based off of your experience when you hear these words. You ready? Yep. GPS. Oh, my car. The current car I have now. So talk talk to me about like how GPS has been or has not been in your life. Oh, for sure. So when I was learning how to drive back in the 80s, 80s. Early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, we didn't have GPS. So we didn't, like, you either knew how to get somewhere or you called someone and they gave you directions and you wrote them down and you furiously tried to read those directions while you were driving, which was really fun. Or then, like, my first job when I traveled a lot, we would MapQuest things. So this is going back to MapQuest. And MapQuest wasn't always right, and I ended up in Canada on dirt roads, in a reservation of sorts, that where I later found out I was perhaps not in the best area, but that is how MapQuest took me, and it was not a super fantastic, and I was kind of lost, and I just knew that I needed to go north and east, so I kept making turns that would get me north and east to get out of there. Um, and then my car that I had for like close to 20 years, I had a little Jeep Wrangler that had nothing so now that I have a car that has GPS, it's like, this is the most glorious thing ever because I can get in my car, put in an address, not even put in an address, put in a business, like a business name or a place name, hit go, and it just magically takes me there. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is wild. I don't know if this is true, but I remember um, in the days of MapQuest, when MapQuest was a tool that I used, uh, it became like a verb, right? You know, yeah. you'd say, I'll map quest that or I'll map quest it if you're mm-hmm. going to go someplace. And I said that to somebody and their response was, I remember this really clearly, that map quest is really a scam designed by Denny's and shoe stores to try to get you to go to them. And I, and I laughed like, that's a funny joke. Ha ha ha. You know? And he's like, no, seriously. It is like if you figure out, he's like, you can, you can figure this out. If you go and do the research, you'll discover that the companies that have financially backed MapQuest that have invested in it are Denny's. And I think it was like pay less shoes or something. Yeah. Okay. And so that it was, it would actually route people so that their routes took them by Denny's <laughs> and by, by pay less shoe stores. Now I, to this day, I don't know if that is actually true or if that's false, but at, I I heard that and I thought that was great and I, I'm really curious. One day I should probably look this up to determine if that is in fact a true story or not. Probably, but now that you mention that, I remember driving by an awful lot of shoe stores on that epic trip to Canada. Okay. A lot of shoe stores and being like, huh, I packed enough. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Oh look, there's another shoe store. Huh. Okay, that that's cool. So let's let's do another couple of, of terms here. Um. We talked about GPS. I'm going to say um, text messages. 
Oh, yeah. That's my default now. But I remember, so going back, so when I was in high school, we called people on the phone. And in my house, we had one phone number, one phone line, and I have an older sister. And so we would take the phone and hide it. So if I wanted Mm -hmm. to talk to people or communicate with people, it was on the phone and I had to negotiate this with other family members. But then texting, this is glorious. I can like business. I can have conversations with people. I don't actually have to talk to someone or like if I have a question that I don't need an immediate response to, I can shoot a text to someone and then they get back to me. It speeds things up. However, It also means that 90% of my interaction with people now is done via text, via messenger, via some sort of app. So um, emojis, do you thumbs up them or thumbs down them? I don't understand that. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) if you could, you know, for example, remove emojis as an option, would you take them out? Would you let them continue to be around? What would you do if you could have control over other people's ability to use emojis yeah, or their inability yeah, yeah. to use emojis. So I would leave emojis in because I find great humor, especially when like my parents try to use emojis when they text me. I find great humor in that. Um, however, do I use emojis? No. So I have a great friend who I will send him a cat video. I will get an emoji response back from him. He will send me a cat video. The response he gets back from me is bah ha 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 exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark. Okay, that makes sense. So well, I'm going to do one more thing here. Um, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. What's a good one here? Um, online dating. Yeah. <laughs> is that that? Yeah, like a, 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 a your version of no comment. Um, no, no, no. I'm, I'm happy to talk about online dating. Um, I think it's been like within the last couple of years that I had the realization that I don't think I translate well in online dating. So I don't think how I type when I'm communicating with people, how I put words together, my sense of humor translates well. So whereas I think it's fantastic and I think perhaps for people who are younger than I am, it works really, really well because they understand. I think it's like an innate understanding on how to communicate via text, chat, online, as opposed to I feel like I'm better, I translate better in person. Mm -hmm. So for me, not super successful. However, I have a multitude of friends who have met their partners through online dating. Okay, cool. So that was our warm up. So <laughs> here, here's where we're going to go next here. So you and I, the other at some point, I don't actually remember when this conversation occurred, but you said something to me that I thought was super fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about when we sat down to do this podcast. So you said that you happened to be at that weird moment in Generation X, which is uh, probably the very, very late 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, um, where you're at the very end of Generation X and people who are millennials, they're, you know, born not that far after you. And so you feel like in some ways being this sort of like late Gen Xer as though you happen to have a lot more in common with early millennials mm-hmm. than you do with other Gen Xers. Um, so I heard this this term and I, it, it, 
after you and I had that conversation, it was ex-lineals. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard that before. And, and I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting term. I wonder if, if that's what she meant in our conversation. So what I, I was just, there's, there's really, uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on being, you know, in the age cohort you are, like kind of being at the end of one thing and sort of at the beginning of another, because the whole point of this podcast for me yeah. is because we're, we're pretty close in age. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I have one foot in the world that existed before the internet and before uh, the, the way that the world is now, this right. like hyper technocratic, very connected, very neoliberal world, right? Like I can, I, I can remember the cold war and how that, that was mm-hmm. like in the, you know, evil Soviets watch out for them. And I also, you know, grew up in a world that is extremely technocratic, highly connected and networked mm-hmm. where capitalism is kind of like the only game in town. Yeah. And it seems like you kind of have a similar experience. So just tell for me sure. about that. Yeah, so so I was thinking, and I was kind of trying to frame this in terms of like my view on the world, like versus someone who's say still a Gen Xer but ten years older than I am, versus someone who's a millennial. What year were you born in? Seventy five. Okay, so I'm the last five years of Gen X. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at someone that was born in sixty five versus someone that was born in eighty five, and I think I connect actually more with the people that were born in eighty five than the people that were born in 65. And I don't know if some of that has to do with like, I remember the Cold War, I remember that, but Berlin Wall came down in 89. Mm -hmm. So I was 14. And I think at that point, like I understood it, but I didn't, I don't have a strong memory of, oh, like we're in trouble. Like Mm -hmm. things are super tense. My parents are gonna like, build a bomb shelter like the world could end i don't have that so i think i grew up in a little bit of a bubble that some of the older millennials grew up in as well where the Mm -hmm. cold war wasn't quite as relevant or like present i should say maybe not relevant but present um like it wasn't a thing that was in your life it was this thing that was kind of in the past yes Yes, it was a little bit more in the past. And like the fear relating to it was a little bit more in the past. Like I feel like that was, I was a little removed from that. Whereas I think people who are 10, 15 years older than I am, that fear was not as removed. Yeah, yeah. They were not as removed from that fear. And then looking at like. So just to translate that a little bit here too, is it, so there's this idea of, you know, did you ever see the movie Red Dawn? Yes. So that's something that, that, strikes me as maybe kind of what, what you're getting at here. Um, so there are people, you know, who might've been born in say like the sixties mm-hmm. and for them, you know, part of their day to day experience was, you know, oh, you better be on guard. There's these bad people called the Russians and they're going to, you know, one day there's going to be people coming down in parachutes with machine guns, you know, ready to take over your high school right. or whatever. Right. You really got to watch. So that was something that, that for them, it wasn't something that, you know, it was part of their life. They mm-hmm. thought about this. They, they, this was in the news. This was the kind of thing that people were having kind of um, nightmares and fantasies about. And for, you know, you and I who were born, you know, post uh, midway into the seventies, mm-hmm. there's this, this thing where, where yes, that is kind of maybe a little bit still a part of our lives, but it's actually, um, it's more like we're kind of passing it, right? Right. Uh, so the, the metaphor I start to think of it is I, I think of sometimes of time as like a three-lane highway, mm-hmm. right? And so you have like the far left lane. That's the lane where, where the cars are going the fastest. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say that's like the, 
you know, up and coming generation of the middle lane, which is the, the people who are, um, you know, in their, well, I'll ballpark it, say like thirties, forties, fifties, maybe. And then you have the, the far right lane, which is moving the slowest and, and they're getting passed by people in the, the other two lanes. So I, I think that what we're, you're saying here is from our experience, right? And mm-hmm. the, the Cold War went from being maybe in the middle lane mm-hmm. and it kind of slid over to the right lane and we drove by it. Yep. That would, I feel like that's a very accurate assessment of that. Um, so with that being said, I feel like that kind of informs views on the world. So like you know, also thinking about music and things like that, where the music, like the musical taste I have is more aligned with people who are 10, 15 years younger than I, mm-hmm. rather than older, um, which is really interesting for me also with the group of people, like group of friends that I have, because there is definitely a, a chunk that are more aligned with older music. Sure. Um, so it's also with music and looking at that and then like, life. So I'm totally comfortable with email, text, having digital conversations, whereas there are people that are not that much older than I am that are like, no, not doing it. Mm -hmm. Don't want to do it. Or like, I don't understand this or it's harder or like rapid fire texting back and forth just doesn't happen. Whereas I feel like that's kind of a almost that's how like young Gen X and older millennials is how they communicate. Yeah, it's as you're saying that I I'm thinking of somebody who I know who I think was born maybe in the very early 60s. Mm-hmm. Like like 60 61, I'm not sure exactly when, but mm-hmm. I I don't think it would have been any earlier than that. And this is somebody who still to this day writes checks. Mm-hmm. For for instance, right? I mean, he does other things too. He doesn't right. only write checks to pay for things. I don't want to make it sound as though he's right. he's crazy. He's not. But um, you know, he'll he'll actually write a check and and that's his preferred method of payment for certain things. And I know other people who don't even have checks, right? right? Like I don't have checks actually. It sometimes is a problem. Uh, I'll, I need to pay for something and I have to I go to the bank, you know, and, and get like <laughs> just a few. Right. Or I have to get like a money order or something mm-hmm. like that. But for this dude, the idea of not having checks, like that's, he's like, why would you not have checks? That's That's dumb. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think like the whole check writing, I think that's a really good point that you bring up too. I remember not that long ago, maybe just 20 years ago, like how quickly I would go through like a book of checks. Mm -hmm. And now because I have certain things that I like to do that it's just easier to pay by check, um, it will take me years, years because I'll write maybe one a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like before you would sit down at like the first of the month or the end of the month prior, write out all the checks for all the bills that were due, send them all off. And now I just go online. But even with that, there's people or like I'll have credit cards on file that just auto pay stuff. But even with with that, I know people that are not comfortable having any of their information anywhere where they don't can't control it and they will write checks or they do everything by money order. So this is one of those examples that I I feel like I'm similar to what you described here, where I feel that I I have more in common with people who are millennials than Mm -hmm. I do people who are older Gen Xers. Uh, And and part of that is that it seems as though millennials, they don't have any issue at all. Like it doesn't even occur to them to mistrust online banking. Right. Right. It's just that that's a thing that people do. It's secure. Nothing will go wrong. Mm-hmm. I am not worried about it. it right. It's like zero anxiety. 
Mm-hmm. And then I know other people who still will be like, I, you know, every time I do that, it just, it, I wonder, I wonder if this is actually going to be secure right. or something like that, you know? And I feel like when people express that skepticism of technology in mm-hmm. relation to like, you know, commerce and paying mm-hmm. for things and settling your bills and all that, that seems weird to me. And it doesn't seem weird to me when people just kind of go like, oh, yeah, that's just what you do. Nothing is yeah. nothing to be afraid of there. Right. No, I'm the same way with that where I'm like, yeah, what do you mean you don't online bank? Of mm-hmm. course it's secure. It's totally fine. In fact, if there's a weird charge, I get a text, an email, and a phone call before you would even realize that you have a weird charge. Yeah, totally. Because like, it's, it's just... all linked up. So I know and I can like kibosh stuff if someone does get my info and mm-hmm. it's done. Yeah, I, I remember I, um, you know, since, since I, I have a, a, a small practice that, that where people will pay me for things, and I know other people who who have small practices where they they see patients and, and get paid, and a lot of some of the older uh, mm-hmm. clinicians who I know, they they still like don't want to do the online payment thing and and all that, and they're they're worried that it's not secure enough. There, and, and it's funny because. In actuality, kind of for the things that you just mentioned, right? In many ways, I think it's much more secure than having people write you a check. Yeah. You know, which has all their information on on a piece of paper and that that, uh, it's not particularly secure. No, no. I mean, because what happens with the check once it's deposited? There's like, or like if you do mobile deposit, although the people that are probably want checks are not doing mobile deposit. For sure. So you brought up something else here that I think was, was kind of cool about this. You talked about music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the first album that you bought with your own money? It was not bought for you by another person. And what format was it in? When I say format, MP3, CD, tape, vinyl. Yeah. So the first thing, uh, I don't, I, I'm sure it was a cassette. Like it was a tape. Um Probably Depeche Mode. I don't know for sure. It would have been Depeche Mode or The Cure. One of those two. And it would have been a cassette. Do you happen to know which Depeche Mode album or which Cure album it would have been? Uh, Disintegration or Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Both great albums, I think. Yeah, I mean, The Cure was the first concert I went to. I was going to ask you that. You beat me yes. to the punch. So The Cure was the first concert and that was Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me in 89. Oh, wow. That was like kind of... <laughs> height yeah did you buy those those concert tickets with your own money or were those gifted you or something my sister bought the concert tickets and the two of us were allowed she had just turned 16 we were allowed to go and drive the car to tinley park Mm -hmm. um and she was allowed to go and she was only allowed to go if she took me with so is this older younger sister older got it um so older sister she was allowed to go if she took me with because i think the logic there is that uh she would get in less trouble if she had to watch out for me. <laughs> I, that, I think that kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I so. never, I don't remember ever buying tapes. I remember people, I had, I had two older cousins and they bought tapes and then they would make copies of the tapes for me because, you know, I, I was a kid and I didn't yeah. have money and I wanted to use my money to buy comic books. And so you can't buy comic books and tapes. So I'd buy comic books, but they would make me tapes. So I remember it was so 
mixtapes loved mixtapes mixtapes were the best that was what you did like you made mixtapes for your friends you made them for your boyfriends you made them for your girlfriends you just made mixtapes and there you would like figure out the arc of the tape you would figure out how many you could get on the tape before you'd have to like how many songs before you have to turn it over if you really liked a song and you couldn't find it and you didn't want to get the tape that had all of that you would wait by the radio for it to come on the radio and then tape it from the radio, which I'm sure was probably not legal, but whatever. Um, tape it from the radio and then try to time it exactly right so that you didn't get the DJ talking on either end of it. Uh-huh. So you just had that song. The trick that I would do for that is <laughs> I would, I knew, I was smart enough to figure out that songs had to be played so many times within like an hour period, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I just taped like an hour of radio, that I'd get a lot of crap I didn't want, commercials and songs that I didn't really care about or already knew or something. But I would also get the song that I did want. And so what I would do, I, I had one of those um, boom boxes that had two tape decks. Yep. And so I would record the radio and then I would get get that tape exactly to the point where the song was about to play and then record that tape to another tape. So it went from radio to tape to tape. That was my workaround because I got so like just angry sometimes because i would be i'd be waiting 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 and i'd, I'd be like, just for the song to come on and i'll hit record it just the right moment then i'd have to go and use the bathroom and that's when it would come on ah and yeah 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 yes same frustration in my youth so okay <laughs> um let me think here let me think here uh uh moving on from this stuff so are you, i i've talked i think maybe with you about this so um I'm going to cover it briefly and jump in if you have a question or something mm-hmm. like that. Are you familiar with the concept of hauntology in the way that Jacques Derrida describes it? Um, vaguely. Okay. So refresher then probably. Yes, please. So Derrida talked about this idea that, and other people have done this too since Derrida, have mm-hmm. kind of like picked up this concept of hauntology and run with it. Um, most notably for me is this guy named Mark Fisher, uh, who who's done some really cool things with it. So, there's this idea that every single one of us, right, you know, is uh, thrown into the world and we're thrown into a time and a place. And that time and place is particular, right? It's got mm-hmm. certain things. We were talking about the Cold War and the mm-hmm. way that that kind of particularly manifested itself in our experiences. Mm-hmm. That was something that was more in the past and maybe kind of in our present and then mm-hmm. it sort of we passed it by. Uh, but anyways, in our present, always, we're not only in the present. It doesn't work that way. We're always haunted by ghosts, and ghosts are things from the past that kind of make their presence felt in the present, but they're not really here. So the Cold War, I think, is a decent example of that. Like right now, um, that is an event, and it exists as a memory, and a memory is kind of like a ghost. It's this thing. It's there, but it doesn't have any like physical form. It can't actually do stuff. It's It can affect things, but very minimally in ghost intangible sort of form. Specters are things that haunt us from the imagined future. Uh, They're not here yet, so they don't have any kind of uh, material form currently, but there's, you you think that at a certain point they're going to materialize and probably Mm -hmm. do something, right? So one of my, the things I'll use for for specters is the specter of climate change, you know, is Mm -hmm. haunting us now. Uh, In the 80s, I think the specter of nuclear war there hadn't been a nuclear war, but there was the specter that there was going to be a nuclear war, and that was that was haunting people, I think, living in the 80s. I remember being alive in the 80s and having that specter kind of show up and, and haunt in, in various ways. So my question for you 
kind of reflecting on your experience, your unique way of being in the, the world and in time as you have been, what are some of the ghosts? So things from the past and some are some of the ghosts that haunt you now. That's a really great question. Um, like big haunting. I mean, I think nine 11, um, I think that had an impact and, in also thinking about that, like nine eleven, I think part of why there's a like the older or younger Gen X and older millennials, I think we have a similar experience with nine eleven, because I think like going back to we were passing the Cold War, mm-hmm. so it was there, but it wasn't there, and then nine eleven was a little bit more. We are living this. And now as we're moving forward from it, it stays there. It stays there as this like specter that it could happen again. So like uh, there's this idea that 9-11 is both ghost and specter? No, I think I misspoke. Ghost. Ghost. So it's this ghost because it's there. It's in the past, but it still lingers and it still comes. But it could also be specter because it could happen in the future. Right. And especially I think with the current political climate being as unstable as it is Mm -hmm. that potentially like there's a greater risk i would say now than even maybe three four five years ago of it happening again then so i think that there's now so yeah i think that is actually ghost and specter something that happened in the past and is very much potentially there as a little dangling anxiety thing of something that could happen I have never thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense to me that it's this thing that it's an event. And and so the, the trauma of that event mm-hmm. continues to be something that haunts, you know, mm-hmm. many people, some more, some less, but it haunts people now. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that what, what about what's the next nine 11 going to be right. the next time that people decide to do that sort of thing. And that, that's that the possibility of that occurring in the future Right is also something that haunts. I, as I say that, my um, my sense would be for me, and I don't know this would be like this for other people, is that the the it's more powerful in specter form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's part of so like for, I mean I don't know I'm going to speak for my generation, but more speaking for me um, as a representative, you know the Cold War was this like was a little bit more fuzzy. So I grew up not really thinking, oh, something like my world could get blown up. And mm-hmm. then 9-11 was my world can get blown up. Right. Like very obvious, like my world can get blown up. And now it's the whole like, okay, so I grew up thinking like, I'm good, I'm safe. And then that happened. And it's no, maybe, maybe we're not. And then I think that there was this like, we're safe again. And then now there's a, but we're not. So that's interesting. So there's this idea maybe that one of the, for, for you, if I hear you right, mm-hmm. you know, we, there was this period of the Cold War, giant specter of, mm-hmm. you know, nuclear Armageddon haunting people. 1989, 1990 rolls around, Berlin Wall comes down, Soviet mm-hmm. uh, socialist republics collapse, capitalism mm-hmm. expands, socialism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wanes. And one of the things that happened then is people started to not be as afraid of, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles raining yeah. down fire. 
nuclear war turning the, our day-to-day lives into uh, Mad Max-style mm-hmm. road warrior post-apocalypse, right? That that became something that was, like, uh, fictional. Right. As opposed to, I should really be afraid of that. And, the, and that was kind of blissful, and right. it, it was it, nice. It became Tom Clancy novels. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, fiction, not mm-hmm. not real. And you kind of were able to coast on that for a mm-hmm. while until 9-11. And then 9-11 happens, and what that does is it makes you and other people very acutely aware of the fact, you know, that the safety that you has become kind of just part of your day-to-day existence that you're taking for granted is, mm-hmm. in fact, taken for granted. It's not... It's not as stable. It's not as solid as maybe it you, you thought that it was. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any any follow up that you want to add to that? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I mean, and I, I like I look at things now, and like you had mentioned, climate change with like a specter that's coming, and I think that that's just like another instability that's there, and then there's that were like 9-11 happened we became more aware of our instability or the world's instability the world's security perhaps and then i think things kind of settled for a little bit again although we had the recession in there and massive economic disruption um, which was also unsettling because we had come from that boom in like the 80s and 90s where things were fairly stable it was the too big to fail mentality, right. right? Right. Yeah. Like these institutions are so solid, so stable that there's the the thought of them uh, being shown to be unstable was right. like, mm, that's not going to happen, is it? No, that's like something that you'd write about. In, Again, fiction. Yeah. Not real. Right. So, and I think like looking at that, and I think this is also where like for me, there's perhaps a disconnect with older generations, I think older generations felt it in that their retirement age got pushed. I think like young Gen Xers, millennials, and even younger, we now look at it, look at it as we probably will not be able to retire. So therefore we have to find some way that even when we're 70, 80, 85, 90 can have some sort of an income because things are too unstable for us to count on that. That's fascinating because I wonder, I don't know this, I wonder, you know, how people who are, say, like, born 60 to 65, did they think about turning 85 years old, 90 years old? Did that that seem like something that was likely for them? I don't know the answer to that. I've never asked anybody in that age cohort that question. But I wonder, you know, because you just said it as though it's, you know, that's reasonably... Yeah, like, we're all going to live that long. Yeah. Or, you know, quite a few of us will, you know. The other thing you bring up here, which is is kind of fascinating, is this idea of um, economic ghosts and specters, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a, a impression that for some people, I'm thinking about my parents mm-hmm. and this this thing called the Great Depression, which their parents, my grandparents, lived through, and so they had their parents kind of um, who were pretty traumatized by that and who were deeply haunted by it. Yeah kind of passing that haunting along to them, but it would, it did probably didn't get passed along in as potent a form. And then they maybe passed it along to, you know, people who are our age, but it, again, it got significantly diluted. And now it seems to me that the depression, 
I, I guess it's one of those things that's like um, a fiction, right? Right. It's it's so yeah. far in the past that people talk about it, but they don't talk about it in a way where it seems as though they they are afraid of it, right? It's this extremely weak ghost that can't really do much. Um, but there's always the specter of a recession yeah. yep. kind of looming. And I mean, I, I, I consume news now when people are talking about, um, I saw something I think recently about how uh, like there, there's so much debt again in the housing market. Like I, I, I don't know if this is the right statistic or not, but somebody said something I think I read said like 33% more than there was before the collapse in 2008. And so it was like, watch out, folks, like the next recession is going to come and will we be able to bounce back, question mark. And so that seems like something which is a specter that's kind of yeah. haunting well, people now. Well, interesting. So on on that, I sold my house last spring um, for a myriad of reasons. Um, and I'm currently renting. And when I sold my house, I had the mentality of, I know that I am probably doing a major cross-country move within a year or a year and a half. And I don't want to get to the point where I'm done with school and I'm going to make that move and I'm stuck with this house and I have to sell this house before I can make that move. And the housing market's pretty good right now, so I'm just going to do it now Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's going to stay good. So I had that like looming when I made that decision last January to just like, I'm, I'm just going to sell it now and I'm going to rent, even though it's going to cost me more for the next year to rent a place than to keep paying the mortgage on my house. So th- that's, that's wild. You're helping me out with this in a way that I like, this seems like so obvious in this conversation that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised that it didn't occur to me before this conversation. So there's the, we both lived through you know, the, the collapse, the like just complete and total bottom falling out of a housing market, yep. right? And and saw property values plummet and mm-hmm. saw people who owed so much more on the property that they owned than the property ended up being worth, right? Yep. And and just how, how bad that was. Like we lived through that. And then, s- like new construction subdivisions that never got finished. Yeah. Like roads that never got put in, infrastructure that didn't get put in. So you have people who bought houses and their subdivision never got finished. They never got full plumbing. Like the infrastructure just never got finished because the companies went bankrupt. They became literal ghost towns. Yes. <laughs> or ghost divisions. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, so that like that was a thing that, that we lived through. And then that became kind of like a ghost because the mm-hmm. housing market, you know, bounced back. As you said, you sold your yeah. house because the market was good. Yeah. So it bounced back. Now 2008 housing collapse is a ghost. But it's also simultaneously a specter. Yeah. This is the part that's like, why did I not see this before this conversation that so many things are both ghost and specter? Like there's this thing that happened in the past and it's, and it's like, oh, that was scary. Um, and you think about it and you think about how it impacted you and the way that you live your life. And you're like, oh, that sucked. And then you're, you're worried. You have mm-hmm. anxiety, real anxiety about it happening in the future again or yep. a different version of it happening. And maybe it'll be worse this time. Oh, right. my gosh. Right. Wow. Yeah. And for me, it was a whole, like, I don't want to be stuck with this house. There's nothing wrong with the house. I just don't want to be stuck with it when I don't want to be here anymore. I want to move east. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to get into a situation where, like, I know the market's good right now, but is it going to stay this way? Probably not, because looking at everything else that's going on, we're ramping up. And the like, you can look at the charts. The charts look similar to what they did in 2008, mm-hmm. right? Like ramping up to that crash. So if you look at that, you're like, oh, it's coming. 
So I might as well extricate myself, even though I'll have a little bit more of a financial pinch for the next year, than be stuck. So this is one of the things that that calls to mind is, and this is one of the things that I think you and me maybe have a similar experience of, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that makes us, again, similar, more Mm -hmm. similar to millennials than it does to people who maybe came before us. Mm -hmm. It's my opinion that people who came before us were kind of um, lived through this period in uh, American history where they could kind of depend on the government and state governments and federal governments and um, also maybe also private corporations to have what I would call a safety net in place, right? Like Mm -hmm. there was pension programs. And the idea was that, you know, you get a job and you work there for a while. And you, as you're working there, you're, you're taking this money that would normally go into your pocket and you're putting it into this thing called a pension and you'll, it'll grow Mm -hmm. there and then you'll have it, when you get older and you're maybe not as inclined to work or maybe you, you can't work in the same way anymore, but you'll have this. It'll be there. to it, It's like you're building this safety net in mm-hmm. your youth so that you can fall on it when you get older. Um, Social Security, you know, yeah. like there was this idea that there is this program called Social Security and it gives you – you pay into it mm-hmm. as you work and then, you know, you retire and you're able to know that you're going to have a certain amount of money coming in to your, your pocket each month from, from Social Security I could go on, but I think you get the point right. here. I think that people in generations, age cohorts prior to us existed in a time in a place where there was a real expectation of a safety net. And I think that millennials have no expectation of a safety net. And here we are sort of hanging out in between that, like our parents and our grandparents, these two generations that we had a fair amount of contact with expected that. Yeah. And then there's these generations that are coming after us that have very little or no expectation of that. And this is maybe one of those areas where we're kind of like right in the middle, but I, I identify more with the millennials than I do like uh, the baby boomers. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, and that's part of, you know, one of my decisions to like shift careers in my forties and to go back to school is that I can, I'm moving into a career that I can do into my eighties because I don't think I'm going to retire. Or be able to retire ever because I don't have a safety net in place. I d- I'm not counting on having Social Security because it may not. There may not be enough left, or what we get may be significantly smaller than what current generations, like current people who are getting Social Security, get. And I think that millennials, that is very much a millennial thing, where they're like, we're not going to get anything, so we have to figure out how to do this mm-hmm. and how to structure our lives now. Which I think that's also a very different pressure than previous generations had in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, I think for for previous generations the idea of retirement that was not a fiction. Right. That was something that they reasonably assumed they would get to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that now you were saying like I switched to a job that I'll be able to do into my 80s, right? Like I'll be able to to doing this thing. Like I can do that. Um, you know, and that's the kind of thing maybe that people, they're thinking about this now. They're going like, if I'm going to, I'm going to be working for a really long time. And, uh, implicit in that Mm -hmm. is this idea that retirement has shifted from being something which is a realistic expectation to something which is kind of like fantastical or fictional or only for the very few and not really something that most people can actually expect to do in their lifetime. Right even though they're going to live for a really long time. Well, and I think there's also been a shift with that 
feeding into that too with like wanting work-life balance and wanting, and I say work-life balance and I put it in air quotes, but wanting to have a job or a lifestyle or a workplace that is, has, allows for more freedoms than perhaps the workplaces that older generations had, um, when having work from home options. And I think that all goes into recognizing that there's not going to be this signifying age of 62 or 65 or whatever it might be where we're done working and we can go on vacations and we can do all of these enjoyable things or these things that we enjoy. So we're going to work really, really hard so, so that we have enough that when we hit that magic age, we can go do it. Now it's the whole like, okay, we're not ever going to hit that magic age where we have that time. So we have to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. Or like plan it in for now. The, this is um, something that it's weird. So like, um, I think that n- now um, one of the, I, I want to organize this thought really well. I probably can't do it. Um, I was reading something recently by Frederick Jameson, and he was and so I'm, and I'm really paraphrasing something that was I think is a sort of complicated idea. But what he was getting at was this idea that for people now to imagine a world that is not completely and totally and utterly dominated by contemporary capitalism, that that is not something which is easy to do. It's kind of like imagining life on an alien world. Uh, there's this idea that the same kind of mental muscles that you would be flexing to write science fiction, you know, with, you know, you travel on a spaceship to this place, which is totally different from the planet Earth with different creatures mm-hmm. and different everything. Those are the same kind of muscles that people flex, mental muscles that people flex when they think about a world that is not dominated by capitalism. Yeah, I would I would actually agree with that um, because I can't even looking at like policies that are, again, air quotes, considered socialist as in like universal health care and uh, minimum income. Mm-hmm. Those are still things that right now are driven by capitalism that why we don't have them like so in the u.s why we don't have universal health care is driven by insurance companies and is driven by profit is driven by capitalism and in order to have that shift happen to have that there's a complete change in structure and i don't know what that looks like i don't know what that change in structure looks like yeah you know, it's it's weird as I was saying that I'm, I, uh, there's this you know quip that people attribute to Jameson, who I just mentioned, and Zizek, and to, to Mark Fisher. This this idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And I think what people mean by that is that when capitalism, you know, if it if it comes crashing down, right, mm-hmm. that it will be the end of the world. It'll be like we've destroyed the world and and it can no longer sustain human beings. Like that's that'll be the end of capitalism. Not that capitalism will end and then like. The, the world i.e. the human race will will continue uh i liked the the second the thing that I, I mentioned here that it's easier to imagine an alien world than it is to imagine our world without uh capitalism being as dominant as it is currently oh yeah i have a much easier time imagining like little green people than i do imagining a world without capitalism as we understand it okay yeah. like i have a much easier time going down like an x-files path mm-hmm than a non-capitalist path. So Mark Fisher, who I've mentioned, is somebody who's also really influenced by Jameson and by these ideas. 
And one of his kind of uh, things that, that he talked about was um, in the past, people imagined the future and they imagined sort of um, really cool futures were like Star Trek futures, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where effectively, you know, people don't go hungry because they can walk up to the food replicator and say, make me a latte. And, you know, it does it. And you don't have to worry about the cost of transportation because you have this like beam me down like mm-hmm. kind of technology, right? Um, it was this idea that that um, capitalism was a phase in history and that it would reach its, its end. And then what would happen is people would free these, you know, technological innovations, these these extremely productive technologies from like the avariciousness that kind of created them and use them in this very egalitarian and libertarian sort of uh, way. Uh, I don't want to say that libertarian is not really what I meant there because there's a political party of libertarians and I don't think that's what Gene Roddenberry was having in mind when he made Star Trek. Anyways, um, those are the kind of futures that people imagine. Now, what the kind of futures that we're always imagining is like Terminator, right? It's right. like the the robots that we have created, the artificial intelligence. And it's apocalyptic. Yeah. No, it decided that it didn't like us. And now it's going to, you know, decide that we're obsolete and irrelevant. And we're just a bootloader for this really crazy AI. And it's like, okay, yeah. humans, thanks for bringing me into, into the world. But mm-hmm. now I don't need you anymore. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That's kind of wild, too, to think about that. Uh, this this is a different uh, kind of thing here. The entertainment, right? This is science fiction, and science fiction is a form of entertainment. Uh, What kind? What kind of shifts do you notice in entertainment? That was one, right? Like the entertainment went from being maybe optimistic to being more pessimistic. Do you notice any other trends in entertainment? uh, You know, from your subjective position in time. So, I think. So one of the things, and I. Like, full disclosure, I don't have cable. I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, I listen to... So one is how things have shifted. So podcasts. I listen to a ton of podcasts. That is probably one of my biggest sources of entertainment. Um, and, you know, that they didn't exist when I was growing up. We had talk radio, but talk radio was not nearly as interesting. And we had, like, stories. You Like, you could sit down and listen to like stories on the radio, but they came on at a specific time. It was not on demand. So I think one of the things also is like with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon prime is being able to watch what you want when you want and not have to wait for a new episode to come on necessarily. And then, so consumption is like how we consume, I think is different, but like, I think also some of the topics that are talked about. So, like recently I have watched several newer ish things that have come out on Netflix, all of which have addressed suicide, um, have had characters that have died by suicide. Um, and I don't think like when I was growing up, that was much more of a taboo thing to, to have in like media, in entertainment. Um, and then also, you know, LGBTQ characters that are LGBTQ, um, and then storylines that are different storylines. You're right. They're not, I feel like not so much that they're apocalyptic per se, but that they are a little bit more jaded. The storylines are just jaded. Mm -hmm. So that makes me think of something here. So one of the shows I really liked when I was in my twenties was the West Wing. Yes. Oh, the West Wing. Like that's, 
like it's such a warm fuzzy like so i watched the west wing in tandem with house of cards that's what i was going to go to right <laughs> so it's like it, there was a time when when that was the thing right the, the west yeah. wing represented this ideal i guess it's optimistic like the people in it are fundamentally good mm-hmm. and then like by that I feel like you can take that society saw it as politicians, the people running our country are fundamentally good. Or they could be. Or they could be. And House of Cards, man. Yeah, like the idea of <laughs> uh, the West Wing existing as a show today. Um, there's, I, I saw a couple episodes of this. I watched it uh, kind of because I, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe this will be good. It, it wasn't. But there was a show called Madam Secretary. And oh, not good. Yeah, it were about the Secretary of State, yeah. and it seems to be very much in that same. Uh, it, it hit the same kind of themes and the same kind of notes that the West Wing did, but they sounded so off in the present. Yeah, they, like they, it wasn't authentic for now. Whereas the West Wing, when that came out, so authentic. Yeah, and then yeah, I had the rewatch. As I was in tandem, like I would watch a couple episodes of House of Cards and then I would have to like get my happy, like get my the world is not a dire place and people are not all evil back. So then I'd watch a couple episodes of The West Wing. Yeah. So that, that that's the kind of fiction that we make now, though. Mm-hmm. Like the political fiction that people mm-hmm. are making is the House of Cards style. Right. Right. It's darker. It's more ominous. It's uh, predatory, maybe, mm-hmm. as opposed to this like idealistic, optimistic uh, feel good thing that you got not that long ago because the West Wing. I mean, when was that made? That would have been in the early two thousands, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was being made. So we're you know not even a quarter of the way into this century, and the way that it looked at the beginning, the way that people were thinking about politicians and politics, the 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 verb of politics is mm-hmm. so different now in the year you know twenty nineteen. Yeah. Wow, that, that's such a crazy change, right? Mm-hmm. For me, one of the things that's kind of wild to think about is the idea that you know people are going to grow up with kids. Kids watch TV, they read books, they listen to podcasts, they do this stuff, right? And I think that to a large degree, that might be one of the ways that they establish sort of their idea of what is and what is not normal. And you're taking a look at the things that they're consuming today, and I'm very curious about what their version of normal is going to be in comparison to what my version of normal was. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I look at a lot of like, I have a lot of friends that have children that are in their teens and I look at how they view the world and also how they respond to things. And I try to think back to when I was in my teens But their view, like, again, when I was in my teens, things were good. Like, the world was not a scary place. I think it's viewed, whether it's consciously or unconsciously now, is it is a little bit scarier. And there is more worry. There's more, people are more anxious, especially teenagers are more anxious. Um, I worked at a high school prior to returning to graduate school. And definitely, like, the thoughts and what what the kids there were worried about were not things that I was thinking about in high school mm-hmm. at all. And, you know, and their, their concerns are legit. They're, they're like, we don't know what things are going to look like in 10 years. And this is unsettling for us because we don't have, we don't know what, what's going to happen. Is there going to be a world? All right. So 
That, that's ominous right there. <laughs> um, so we're going to, just because of the time that we have left here, I want to kind of wrap up and I want, it's, it's like a, a series of four kind of examinations, four kind of questions that I want to ask you here. Um, so the first question is, you know, looking at the generations that came before you, you know, your forebearers, uh, when you, you consider them as a group, what are you worried about? For them now? Mm-hmm. Um, really, honestly, like end of life and having the end of life be something that is satisfying for them um, and having it be something that is not scary for them. So same thing here, This that, that group of people. What is it that you want to talk to them about? What is it that you would want to ask them? Oh, so I'm smiling, but you can't see. Um, I want stor- like I want the stories of their growing up. Um, so my dad passed away two years ago, and like the last three months that he was alive, I learned so much about what the world was. He was born in 1934. I learned so much about what the world was like when he was a kid and his experiences as a kid. And then I also recently had to do an interview, and I did an interview with my mom, kind of tracing her life history. Um, And again, it was like so many experiences, especially for her in like the 50s and 60s, and what things were really like at that time, because we can read about it. We hear some stories, like I'll listen to podcasts, especially talking about like the civil rights movement. But talking to someone who actually was there, who actually lived through it and their experiences with it, like that's something that like I won't have that experience. So the best that I can hope is to be able to hear theirs so I can almost have that experience vicariously through them. And then what were things that came from that that apply to now? Like how can we at the risk of sounding cliche, be better people or be more considerate people or be people who are just more aware so that we're not doing some of the things that led up to some of those, like, led up to riots and things like that where we had to have these, like, drastic things to have change happen. So, same thing here. Now, imagine the the people who are coming up, right? Like, those... Uh, individuals who are, you know, just coming into their adulthood now. They're, say, like somewhere between 18 and 21. You know, you think about them as a group. What are you worried about? Oh, um, that has to be. I think I am worried about what kind of world previous generations and even my generation are leaving for them and what they're going to have to, for lack of a better term, clean up. And... If we, in our late 30s, 40s, and 50s, have, have done a disservice to them. Um, and then also, uh, you know, what, what will they need to be successful to not have whatever the world is going to turn into be an overwhelming shitstorm for them? So what would you be curious about? You know, you can, if you were to, to, what do you want to ask them about as they look over their horizon, you know, into a future that we probably won't get to, to visit with them because they're younger than we are. They'll probably live longer than we do. 
they're they're looking over there and they're they're seeing stuff. Um, what do you want to ask them about? Well, I want to know what they're seeing and what what they're what what's important to them and what what they want that to look like because they're seeing things, but I think they're also at a place where they can start to influence what that looks like. Like they can, they're, they're not kids. So they have some power and they're young enough and they're driven enough that they can start to influence things and change. And I want to know what that changes. I want to know the things that are important to them and what they see and how it's going to look. All right. Well, thank you. So this has been an episode of From 78. I, I talked with Grasshopper about ghosts and specters and looking into the past and looking into the future and fictions and realities and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. You're welcome. That is it. Uh, that has been this week's episode of From 78. Thank you, listener, for taking the time to download this and listen to it. There is all sorts of different things that you could be doing with your time. So the fact that you decided to use your time to listen to this podcast is uh, meaningful to me. Thank you for doing that. Uh, two things that I wanted to say, and then I'll be out of your earbuds and you can move on to whatever's next. So first thing, if you want to follow this podcast on twitter i did make a twitter account it's from 78 podcast that's f-r-o-m number seven number eight podcast so you can go ahead and follow the podcast on twitter if that's something that you'd like to do second thing is that the show does have a patreon page and if you would like to offer some support to the show that would be appreciated Uh, if you don't that's of course fine i'll continue to make it regardless of whether or not people support the show or don't Uh, but one of the ways that I'm doing the Patreon page is if you give any money at all, yeah, the lowest amount or the highest amount, everybody gets the same kind of extras. So even if you give just uh, $1 per month, you will be getting all of the same stuff that everybody else gets. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much it. I am from 78. Thank you, thank you, thank you again for taking the time to download this, for listening to it. Um, and whatever you're about to do next, I hope that it brings you lots and lots of enjoyment and uh, I hope that between now and the next time you hear my voice in your earbuds you make some glorious mistakes take care